Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. In this podcast, I speak to Linda Teal, Director of the London studio of Scandinavian practice White Architecture, about how they're bringing a Swedish aesthetic to their work on the Gascoigne Estate in East London. Linda Thiel, architect and partner at White Architecture, running our London studio. Thank you for being here with me today. So I think to start out, I'd really like to ask you about the project you're working on now, because um, I think that's quite an exciting project in London. So. Yeah, so uh, we're currently working on a project embarking for B Forest on the Gascoigne East Estate, developing two courtyard blocks and some other buildings around a big park. So about 500 homes and um, communal gardens and uh, a mix of affordable shared ownership and private. And B1 are not your usual development company, so do you yeah. want to tell me a bit about them? B first. Yeah. B first, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I think they're the arm length from Barking and Dagenham. So they were established about a year ago or a year and a half ago. Um, so they're developing homes, schools and um, built environment for the borough, uh, all the profit goes back into the borough, um, being reinvested in new projects or schools or other things. So it's really interesting to work with a developer who's doing it and are going to stay on site. They're doing it for themselves or for the local residents and they are not going to leave. And the way that they will also manage the buildings and they really, they know their communities because they worked, uh, they know Barking Dagenham so well. So it's really nice to work with someone who can get under the skin of a place and see the, the different ways to develop it. And tell me about the mix there. So you've got some affordable rent? Yeah, so it's uh, roughly 60% affordable and within that 50% shared ownership and affordable rent, 50-50 and then 35 to 40% private uh, sale within the whole 500 units. And I think one of them key things that we said from the start and, and agreed on is that it's designed as total tenure blind and we also want the courtyards to be shared between all three tenure types um, to really get that mix of people so you don't have you know here are the private block and here's the affordable block so they should really be un invisible in a way. So the context of the scheme, what's it like around there now? So it's on the uh, Gascoigne estate, Gascoigne East estate, um, which is very close to Barking Town Centre. And they are now, um, I mean, it's a really heavily worn old 60s estate. So the tower blocks are coming down and they're redeveloping it with proper public realm, reinvesting a lot in landscaping and parks. Uh, I'd say the key asset on their site is two schools. So it's a primary school and a new secondary school coming in place as well. Uh, and we're also working with a community, new community centre. What's been your approach to the space between the buildings? I mean, when we... I wouldn't say it's a particular Scandinavian approach, but when we work with it, it's the urban design aspect of developments are always landscape-led. It's really important to get everything in between the buildings right. The building's not really rocket science, but if you don't get those public places right and these, which sort of lays the ground for the social infrastructure in a place, I think that's really key. So we work a lot with the park, the permeability of these blocks and the courtyards, and in addition to the park, we have a few pocket parks and uh, 
just how the streets are designed and then identifying a hierarchy between these different green areas that are linked together and then it will be much denser than it is today uh, and I think with high density you really need to invest in the in the public place everything in between the buildings. What's your approach to walking cars the mix of traffic? I think I mean that is I think that is the challenge of our time how do we deal with traffic we have no idea if we're gonna have any cars in 20 years I mean we probably will but to what extent and how are they going to be used I think I mean, shared streets are nice in a way, but if you don't have your hierarchy right and the structure right, it's probably difficult for people to use. So I think it's good if, I mean, we, all, we always start to set up the, the routes from a pedestrian point of view. So if you can walk, you can get everywhere, um, and then bikes, and then cars. But then obviously you need to have the accessibility and we currently have lots of lorries coming with deliveries so they need to have proper, you know, easily to find all the front doors and everything. Might have drones in a while so we don't have to worry about the lorries but I think it's um, getting that pedestrian routes uh, in the first place. Obviously we need people to walk as much as they can and it's easy for children and old people to take it at their own pace um, and sort of having some sweet spots at you know, ideal distances that you can walk in between and then you can relax. It's really about the park bench and then density is like the, the rest of it. When you're looking to design something that's going to complete, I mean, when is this one completing? In? Uh, it's gonna take, uh, maybe it's, it's all nice in five years with the park and everything. So when you're looking ahead and you're kind of also thinking longer term in terms of this as a community that's going to grow and change over time, how do you um, begin to think about how future-proofing your project or how to create it for a future community um, that may have a very different mix to how it is today and very different concerns? That is the, the difficult part because, I mean, even if we do lots of... We do engagement with the current residents on the site and the neighbours, but it not, might not be them moving in eventually so then we need to sort of anticipate who's going to move in you can set all different kinds of strategies and trying to understand and look at precedents i think that is difficult i think we need to embrace that people are going to use these homes in whatever way they need and want um, i think i tend to actually just go to places in cities and just watch people and say okay so how are these people going to use these apartments i mean i even was sitting at Primark and it's like, okay, these other guys are going to move into our homes. What stuff are they going to bring? I think it's really interesting. Just to, I mean, I can go to Harrods and look at them as well, but I think it's just interesting to look at people and try to envisage how they're going to use the space. And what did you see at Primark, Mark? What did you notice? Yeah, but it's fascinating. It's got all ages. All, it's like everything. It's a huge mix. And obviously, that's exactly what it's going to be, particularly in a place where it's, uh, the tenure split is what we're designing for which I think is great. And hopefully then with the communal gardens and these public places where they can meet and greet and actually get to know each other and to build that community. I think that's the important thing. Um, we can't really understand exactly what the community will be like, but if we can try to provide, you know, opportunities for them to create, you know, their neighborhood and their families in that area, I think that's then it hopefully works. And obviously then that's going to change 
in 10, 20 and 30 years again. So you just need to be robust to be able to meet as many changes as possible. There's real fears about gentrification and social cohesion when you've got these different economic groups. Um, you've got them all within one uh, housing estate mm. around one courtyard. Mm. How, do you, how do you try to nudge them together through your design or through the ground floor spaces that you include? Um, is there, you know, do you anticipate them um, that you're going to encourage them to, to mix or is the idea that they they kind of live side by side and perhaps don't, but they they somehow are brought together. Well, I think that's the. I mean, that is the challenge. Obviously, we have discussed this a lot on this project. Do we? Can we have the tenure split totally blind across the different cores as well? But then maybe that's not doable at the moment for different management reasons. Um, but I think the important thing has been to us to actually have the full mix of tenure sharing a courtyard and then hopefully you can create a community and they can have their spring and autumn you know let's you know clean up the courtyard and do all the plants and you know things together maybe they can have their summer party together in the courtyard to get to know each other because you never know who you know who you find across the courtyard in another block so i think it's trying to keep it to a reasonable number of people as well and i think I believe that if you're in a courtyard block with apartments, there are better ways or perhaps better opportunities for people to actually meet rather than living in a tower block and you just go up and down the lifts and then you're out on the street. But obviously we're going to need those as well um, in some developments. When uh, you're looking at your courtyard, what's your approach to security? I know that's kind of a hot topic to key fob it or not, to fence it or not. And um, how are you uh, tackling that issue? I think, I mean, being Swedish, the Scandinavian approach is that everything is pretty much open and you can walk across and it's very embedded in our culture that it's open to everyone but it comes with a lot of uh, responsibility and you really need to respect people living at ground floor and it's learning all the sort of subtle shifts in private, semi-private and public. Um, I totally appreciate that's difficult in a context where everybody's quite close, sort of used to having their private defensible space and its fences and its gates and its fobs and everything. Um, we have had extensive discussions about this with Secure by Design officers and uh, be first. And I think we are now aiming to enabling to have the courtyards open, but with gates so you can close them off at night. Uh, and hopefully over time residents will get used to how they want to use them. And we also have a mix of commercial and residential use at ground floor that can wrap around and be at ground floor on the courtyards as, as well. So, Is that to activate that inner yeah. space? So not just activate the perimeter and street frontage, but also activate the courtyard side of, of the ground floor. And is that to have kind of security by overlooking or by Yeah, activating? so it's more like ice on the street or ice on the courtyard. Um, it is quite nice when, when children can play and, and you can have their parents or grandparents, you know, looking at, sort of calling them from the balcony. It's like dinner time. So I think that's, um, that's what we're hoping for. I know it's a huge challenge and it really comes down to the residents themselves to sort out how they want to share it. We can give the different possibilities and do as good design as possible. 
I mean, ideally, you would want to know who's going to move in, so you can design the court just together, and they can really give input on it. But us, we don't know because it can take so long for it to get built. It's really difficult to do that. It is always difficult to sort of have the residents on board at that early stage, unless it is a co-housing and they're actually buying in and designing it themselves or together. Um, and it's been really successful when we worked with hospitals, actually, and also using all you know digital tools like VR, so we can have nurses and doctors and patients and both sort of the sick patients and their relatives uh, look at the design and say what could work for them. Uh, so I think. With new tech, it's really great opportunities to allow people to get a true insight in what spaces can provide and how they want to use it. So, I mean, hopefully we're getting there. I mean, there's also planning issues. We need to define what kind of trees and plants or everything that's going to go in the courtyards. But ideally, you would like to say, no, yeah, it's going to be a mix of green and hard surfaces, and it's up to the residents to decide once they move in. I think, yeah, so hopefully we can sort of be a bit more flexible about the planning regs. You mentioned um, that uh, in an ideal world you'd like to incentivize people to to care for their places. Do you want to tell me about that idea? I mean it's it's always down to the money. <laughs> I mean we just have to <laughs> acknowledge that. I think as designers we can you know try to envisage how people can use the space. We can do our very best to do really nice designs but I think if it's actually, if the residents that move in in the end can feel that it actually comes down to, you know, lower rent or some kind of kickback, the more they engage and, and take care of the communal areas in, in, in a development, hopefully they get used to it and actually do it. Uh, I think that's the sort of down to the everybody's uh, wallet. <laughs> I think which. I know has been tested in some places and it does make a change. Uh, so I think that's something. Obviously, not every developer or sort of um, management company would be able to do that, but I think it is worthwhile. Uh, it makes a little bit of a difference anyway. Would, um, we're here in, in Google headquarters. It's a good place to talk about technology. <laughs> uh, is that something that you're, you're thinking about when you're designing? Um, this project about about what people are using now, what they're going to be using. I think, I mean, I think we're in, in a very challenging time because we know that everything will change, uh, but we don't really know exactly to what extent or how fast it might go slower or even faster than we can anticipate. So it's almost like yes, there will be some kind of door or some kind of. Um, interface where you enter from one space to another but I mean the very classic traditional sort of architectural thing is you design everything from the door handle to the whatever so I'm like are we even going to have door handles are we just going to have chips sort of somewhere or I don't know so I think that whole transition about how we use space and how we enter in and out of space uh, is going to be really interesting and, and how we embrace that and when we move through different sequence of public rooms or private rooms, how do we embrace that? Because I think that would be different. Uh, and then obviously our homes are going to talk to us and they're going to do all, everything on their own. Whereas the, how do we keep the integrity uh, within ourselves and within our communities? Do we share everything? Or um, yeah, how can we, I think, I think culture is really important. Culture change quite slowly. 
the really sort of deep down culture and I think we just need to try to manage that at the same time and I think it comes down to integrity and sort of try to be not just go with the flow but we need to make some kind of resistance because it can happen anyway we just need to sort of try to see if, if this is the only way or if it can be in many different ways it would be good to hear you talk about white architecture as a company because I know uh, you invest quite a lot of research mm. why is that important as a company well I think it's I mean, that's one of the really benefits of working with a, in a, within a big company, or you could probably do lots of research in a small company as well. But I think it's really important. What we do as architects, we're, I mean, we're problem solvers, and we're supposed to try to create as robust and human-friendly places uh, as possible. And I think it's really interesting when we can have researchers going into to depth of different aspects of what we do. If it's cultural philosophy, if it's within philosophy or if, if it's within high-tech and digital tools, that's really beneficial. So I can still focus on what I think as, as an architect or urban designer, and then I realize things are shifting really fast. I can't be on top of everything. Um, I can try to keep the holistic approach, but then I can call my colleagues. I've perhaps been doing heavy-duty research on digital tools and VR, whatever everything is called, and say, what's the latest? How are buildings going to change? What are the latest you know, rumors within building technology and IT? So I think that's really, really interesting. And then we can try to embrace that into our design without having to take a year off and just do research and then come back. <laughs> I think that's the beneficial, I mean, we're 100% employee-owned, so we can decide what we want to reinvest our profit in. And we have always been doing lots of research, and I think that's really good. I wanted to ask you um, the environment that you're working in in Barkingham and Barking and Dagenham has quite a lot of crime, mm. um, and I think there are some challenges with youth around there. Mm. They're often the ones who are left out of a housing development. There's always kind of playgrounds for the younger children. There might be consideration of kind of older residents, uh, but the youth are always, there's always kind of a question mark. Mm. Um, are they allowed to hang around? Are they not? Are mm. they in the security cordon? Is there anything in, what's in it for them? Mm. And um, I'm wondering, how are you addressing the kind of issues of youth? I mean, one thing is, where do we do, where do we sort of, where do we put the basketball pitch or the skate park or can we or are everybody going to complain about noise or, you know, or the kids, uh, teenagers being out late. But obviously they need to, f we need to provide somewhere for them where they feel that they want to hang out without being overlooked or monitored or having, you know, they need to start to explore their freedom. I think that's what all the teenagers need to be able to do. It is difficult, I think it's, um, but I think what you potentially could do in a local context, we've been talking to, there's a boxing club uh, close by that really sort of fighting crime, trying to get teenagers involved. We're also working on a community hub within the development and hopefully we can have that open long hours where youth can go and hang out and do different kinds of things. Ideally, I would like to introduce sort of workshops where perhaps old people can sort of teach or be uh, in resident to have teenagers coming in to mend, mend furniture or work with you know, their own fashion or just 
be someone to be there when their parents aren't there, or if they want to talk to someone who's not their relatives, someone more. But I think it is, it is, that is a different part. And I think within White, we've done a lot of research on young girls and how they can feel safe and what they would want in a city and in, in a project called Places for Girls. But actually, it would, just because lots of boys take over the public sports places, but we also know that young boys and young men are actually the ones that are being most exposed to crime and stabbings and all kinds of really horrible things. So how do we create a safe environment for them? But I think it goes down to both providing good sports, open spaces, or these kind of workshop places, community centers, but also how we design the public room and how we work with, I mean, it comes down to really bare basics, lighting, you know, good places where you can walk and you, if you have, I mean, currently on the estate, they, one of the blocks that's been already demolished used to host the old chip shop. And everybody's like, the chip shop is gone. We don't have anywhere to go. We just used to go there and hang out because we knew it was safe and it was, everybody was there and it was at the center of the estate. So it wasn't far away for anyone. I think it's also providing those uh, hubs along a route so you know that you're not more than five minutes away from a safe spot perhaps, if it's a shop or if it's whatever it might be. Um, so there are different kind, really hands-on strategies to, to work with connectivity on a, on, a, on a walkable sort of level. Okay. What, um, what keeps you up at night when it comes to making places? Well, I think I, I'm really passionate about the word respect. I think that's really important to teach our children and how to actually do the face-to-face -face time and, and learn to respect all different kinds of people and understand that we're all different. And then I'm also and thinking about how can I as an architect provide really good places for people to meet and just hang around and, and, and relax and feel safe. I think that's something that's really important. How can we create robust urban and suburban context that can evolve over time, hopefully, if we have less cars, how can we then, how can these places survive and be taken to use in a good way by residents? It's really, I mean, as architects, you never own anything. You don't own your projects. It's like, but we always say that we hand them over at some point, which is a bit strange. I think it's um, always designing with the, with the users in mind. I don't design for myself. I did design my own house at one point, but that's for me. But in general, it's for the end users and all different kinds of people to use it. It's brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.